and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And today we're going to tackle a subject that everyone talks about. And I'll bet most people are like me, which is namely, I'm going to confess right here and right now that I don't know much about this subject, but like a lot of people, it's so important that I wing it. And the subject is cybersecurity. Today, Mooney and I will be joined by a serious expert on the subject who will scare the bejesus out of you. Mark Kaur is with us today to talk about how cybersecurity matters to individuals, to companies, to governments, and basically to every institution on the face of the earth. Dr. Mark Kaur is the CTO and co-founder of Synac, the leader in crowdsourced security. Mark co-founded Synac after focusing over nine years on cybersecurity in academia and government where he served at the National Security Agency and the Defense Information Systems Agency. Yes, so Peter is right. I never thought I'd say that. But when we decided to talk about this, we didn't know a whole lot. So we had to start at the very beginning by finding a good working definition. And before we uh, move on, Peter has a story about his father that can put our novice status into context. Mooney, I can't believe you're making me say this on air. Okay, so what the, I was telling Mooney the other day was that my dad was an older man since the minute he had me, but even in his late 80s, he never lost his curiosity. And sometime in the early 90s, we're at a restaurant, and out of nowhere, he looks over to me and he says, so where do I find the World Wide Web? I want to see it. And so at that time, I made fun of him. But when we planned this episode, I have to admit, I felt a little bit like my father. Where the hell is the cybersecurity threat? Where do I go to see it? Tell me how real is the cybersecurity, is the ability for us to protect ourselves against cybersecurity. That is a good story and puts into context what we're talking about here. And since this is a political podcast, let's start with governments. And what they're seeing is the reality of cyber conflicts all the time. And no conflict is more evident than Russia's interference in the U.S. election in 2016. And notwithstanding the fact that cyber threats have become the main elements of tension in the U.S.-Russia relationship, Russia is behind cyber intrusions in other countries' elections as well, and there's significant evidence pointing to Russian targeting Europe elections in Italy, Hungary, Austria, Poland, France, and Spain. But Mooney, you know, Russia is in a way just a beginner when it comes to cyber spying because the Oscar for that has to go to China. China has become the expert at stealing Western technology and has unveiled gigantic and controversial cybersecurity laws that are designed to restrict the operations of foreign companies and protect China's innovation. One of the top issues now in U.S.-China trade negotiations is Huawei's 5G network restrictions and other digital spying concerns. But China's use of the cyberspace, Peter, is not only a concern because of how it attacks and restricts foreigners. What about the spiraling use of facial recognition and artificial intelligence to massively repress the Uyghur citizens of the Xinjiang province? China's government has, for all practical purposes, placed the 22 million citizens of Xinjiang into a virtual cyber cage, controlling their movements at home, at work, and on the street monitoring phone calls and controlling their net surfing. Imagine where that could go. So when we ask ourselves who, who actually has done more and taken more, done more progress to protect against, against cyber attacks, I mean, I think it has to be Europe, Mooney, that has really done more than any of the other Western democracies to codify protection. But the fact is it's a drop in the bucket because most of the EU protections have concentrated on data protection laws and regional recommendations for 5G technology, but it leaves the larger issue of like defense against cyber, cyber attacks. It leaves that for NATO, which has created new standards for collective defense. 
Cyber attacks, cyber security, cyber threats, they're becoming ubiquitous now. No wonder that it's the military that leads them because every day there's a new story. Saudi oil infrastructure is under attack. Huawei spying technology, Iranian fake news, Chinese spies hacking the NSA, plus the idea of Siri and Alexa in every household being turned into like a weapon. It feels like a collective panic sometime. Well, think about the day-to-day, Peter. The experts worry about dams, traffic lights, metro systems, hospitals, and schools as being big targets. Energy grids and water resources are also dangerously vulnerable. And for business, the situation is the same, if not worse. So there's constantly changing risks, insufficient infrastructure. I mean, nobody really knows how to counter this, or they're just learning as they go along. And poor training all around makes cyber such a frustrating and difficult matter for companies. In the words of Charles Robbins, the CEO of Cisco, there's two types of businesses in the world, those who've been hacked and those who have not realized that they've been hacked. It's a really scary time to be a CEO. And the world scrambles and scrambles and scrambles to catch up. The problem with fixing all of these, any way to sort of repel these threats is that the solutions themselves often pose ethical challenges. You, in a way, have to become Chinese with facial recognition tools and tools like surveillance and compliance laws for workers that create legal issues that are being resolved much more slowly than those the attacks are being launched. Everyone agrees that the solution is collaboration and training and partnership and quick response, but the truth is that the problem is mushrooming so much faster and at, at a, such a quicker rate than any of the solutions come around. Public and private sector around the world, everybody is reacting too little, too slowly, or overreacting in a panic. And this feels like the right time to bring in our guest. Dr. Mark Kerr is a CTO and co-founder of Synec, the leader of crowdsourced security. Synec leverages the world's most trusted ethical hackers and an industry-leading platform to find critical security issues before criminals can exploit them. Synec's trusted hacker-powered platform protects top banks around the world, DOD classified assets, and close to $1 trillion in Fortune 500 revenue. He's advised the National Security Agency and Defense Information Systems Agency, as well as performed research under DOD contracts related to information security, network analysis, and jam-resistant networks communication protocols. Dr. Mark Kerr, welcome to Altamar. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So we'll go right into um, the fray. The world is on edge with the issue of cybersecurity. It seems like everywhere we go, there's a threat, a breach, an intrusion. Are we really at risk or is this a paranoid overstating of the threats of cyber attacks? No, I think we're, we're definitely at risk. Cybercrime is, is really predicted to grow annually every year for the next for the foreseeable future. Okay, It's, it's now you know, predicted to cost the world trillions of dollars by 2021. Um, and it's really a scale problem. If you think about it, you know, how many devices in your home, how many devices that you use every day are connected to the Internet? And, and this this is this is definitely related as more devices get connected to the Internet. The number of vulnerable services and, and vulnerable applications uh, will, will increase. Uh, in addition, you've got a talent gap right now, of about three and a half million cybersecurity uh, jobs in our market. And these are going to go unfilled uh, for the foreseeable future because we just can't push enough people into the field. Uh, there are, you know, really, really the number of threats and the people exploiting those threats is growing year over year. And we have to consider some alternatives to, uh, you know, starting to resolve these issues in a, in a creative way, which is really what Synac is all about. You know, if you think about cybersecurity, 
as a, as a field, it's an asymmetric threat, much like counterterrorism. While I was at the National Security Agency, I worked counterterrorism, and you, you, you always worry about these lone wolf attacks, and it's much the same way in cybersecurity. You worry about one actor who can you know, exploit lots of devices, and you've seen this happen in, in Internet of Things vulnerabilities over the past couple of years, where somebody will build a botnet that exploits certain devices that, that are in people's homes. And it could come down to one person creating that and one person weaponizing it. And so what we have to consider is, is ways to you know, combat that asymmetric threat and bring you know, more people into this field and, and deploy them in, in very seam, seamless ways. And that's what Senac is all about. So, Mark, let me just ask. I mean, clearly one of the major roles for government is to do more to prevent cyber uh, warfare, cyber attacks, and raise the level of cybersecurity, but the costs are enormous. What is the role that you see for government? Does it does it foment people like you and help people like you? Does it create its own solutions? Tell me how you see government's role. Well, the government can start by setting you know broad standards, right? They've tried to do this with uh, NIST security standards. Those are advice that the government sets out and tells you know, commercial companies and government agencies alike saying, hey, this is the best way to do cybersecurity. This is also a place where the government has to lead in implementation. If you think about it from their perspective, the government runs one of the largest you know, IT organizations in the world. And especially if you think about the military, I mean, the F-35 jet has more than 8 million lines of code in it, more than any other uh, US or allied jet in history. And the only solution to securing all these information systems and all these weapon systems is really to integrate great talent and technology. You know, we have to push the boundary of the cost-benefit analysis for cyber attackers and make it really, really difficult for them to exploit vulnerabilities in these systems. So as the government you know, you know, is, is a consumer of technology, they also set policies and, and legislation to enforce how organizations are securing uh, technology that consumers use. And there's been a general lack of attention to privacy and, and security of major systems that uh, the public relies upon. And that's where the government can step in and start to put mandatory controls in place. You know, This is a place where the government has to lead, though, and, and leading from the front requires that they start to secure their own systems. And so they've started to make headway in that. You saw the, the White House cybersecurity strategy did outline steps to you know, improve the structure and, and posture of the United States government cybersecurity systems and prevent breaches by Russia, China, and other, other nation states. And this will continue to be a focus for, their, for the administration, for sure. But leading from the front, they have, to, they have to lead the implementation, they have to lead the policy, and they have to foster public-private partnership to bring great talent in to help solve these problems. But this can't, again, I have the question from a civilian, but it doesn't seem seems one of those things that needs to be attacked from not only one nation, but rather some type of an international agreement among nations that sort of share similar standards and, and information. I mean, it can't be just the United States. This has to be some type of an international agreement, like there were international agreements about, you know, the mail and, and telecommunications, etc. Well, there are international standards, you know, how systems connect, right? The internet is you know, it started out being built by the United States government, but it has expanded, you know, obviously to the entire world and everybody relies upon the standards that we, we put in place. Um, and there are international standards body, bodies that put rules in place for how systems are connected. But in terms of like international norms of how, you know, governments operate in the cyber world, this has not been well fleshed out yet. 
Um, and so, you know, you're seeing some people start to talk about whether there should be a sort of a Geneva Convention approach to you know, cybersecurity and cyber uh, activities of governments. And what is what is normal? What is allowed? Is espionage allowed? Is or cyber attacks allowed? Are these the same equivalent of you know kinetic strikes? Is it the same equivalent as is dropping a bomb on a nation if you shut their power grid off? These are all things that are you know, still being fleshed out, and we don't have a good international solution for it yet. In the daily life, we're constantly being warned that everything is hackable: our cars, our appliances, our computers. Obviously, will there just finally come a time where the concept of privacy loses its value altogether? Well, I think, you know, if you're a consumer, you have to assume that your data has been compromised at this point. I mean, we've seen the OPM breach. OPM stores all of the government's personnel records. It's the Office of Personnel Management. So they were breached by the Chinese, and that that resulted in you know, 21 million records being stolen. Uh, you've seen Equifax. Uh, there's, there's just been many, many cases uh, over the last five, 10 years of data breaches that have exposed consumer data, you know, including social security numbers, date of birth, you know, addresses. And, and really, these are all the el- fundamental elements of identity theft. Um, so you have to assume your data is out there and you have to assume that attackers can get at it. Um, and I think that paranoid mindset will help you clean up where you put your data. But until consumers start to make decisions about what they buy based upon the security of those services, we're not going to see a major shift here. And so I think the one thing that consumers can do is start to uh, put pressure on on the companies they buy from to protect their data and start to you know only buy from companies that have strong security practices. So what do you suggest to do buy products that only that that have some sort of a seal of approval from cybersecurity experts? Well, that would be nice. You know, if you think about the the consumer electronics market, they pass you know international standards for things that can be put into your home. You know, you've got certain requirements for building codes. You, you've got a lot of these examples of physical attributes being being tested before they're sold to consumers. And we don't have the equivalent for cybersecurity. So you buy a device on Amazon, there's nothing guaranteeing that that device has been uh, tested for security vulnerabilities. And this is part of the problem. So this is a great place where the government can can lead and start to insist upon some basic cyber hygiene for consumer electronics and and other online services that people consume. Mark, you mentioned China, and we read often about the cyber threats from China. But what does the potential cyber conflict with Russia looks like, and how is that different from the China? Well, well, the Chinese, you know, do get caught a lot uh, doing these intrusions, and, and you know, I think it's because it's it's cheaper for them to, you know, steal technology than to develop their own. You know, in terms of a broad cyber conflict, though, with either Russia or China, it could go it could go negative pretty quickly. If you think about the number of connected systems that we have, you know, related to, you know, water systems, dams, uh, and power systems, you know, these are all vital, critical systems that need to be uh, <laughs> need to be secure from breach. So I think that's what most worries most folks is if we ever get into an escalated cyber war with a, with a determined adversary, uh, they're going to have the capabilities to to cause physical, real world effects from a cyber intrusion. Let me ask you a little bit about the reverse question that Mooney just asked, which is, is the West far behind curtailing these risks that you just described? Because in a way, it seems like the medicine to really protect us is in a way worse than the evil itself. I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, as a, as a way of saying, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I mean, clearly the Chinese are uh, have deemed the Uyghur population in Xinjiang province a, a danger. So now they have 
22 million people practically in a cyber cage. I mean, is, is that what we're heading for also, where we're going to have facial recognition and surveillance and, and cyber spying on our own populations as a way to protect ourselves? So I don't think the West is really far behind in curtailing these risks. I mean, we, we have the fundamental you know, belief in, in freedom and, and privacy from the government, which, which is a major differentiator. Uh, so in the West, you're, gonna, you're not going to see pervasive spying and surveillance, in my opinion. You're going to see proactive approaches to security. I think you're going to see more folks in the government trying to push you know, alerts out to private sector through public-private partnership and, and try to prevent adversaries from exploiting these breaches you know, or exploiting these vulnerabilities in advance and causing these, these problems. Uh, one of the things that you know, we've tried to do with SYNAC is, is really bring a lot of resources at the problem in an offensive nature saying, hey, you know, we're going to go recruit hackers from all over the world. We're going to bring them onto this platform and incentivize them to find these vulnerabilities ahead of the adversary um, and do that very quickly. Because what you're seeing is, is adversaries are exploiting vulnerabilities that are so new, people aren't patching their systems fast enough. So we have to just accelerate the pace of change and accelerate the, the speed at which our government systems and our commercial systems are patched against you know, new vulnerabilities that are hitting the market. And in terms of you know, the Chinese approach of, of a walled garden where you're, you put a firewall and you analyze everything in and out, I don't see the West going to that, that type of model anytime soon. Is there a country that stands out to you as having done a better job than other countries in terms of both educating the public, but also equipping the private sector with, with as much information as possible to make that country free of cyber attacks? I think the United States uh, Department of Homeland Security has done a pretty good job at, at pushing alerts out to commercial entities and, and starting to do more on the information sharing side of things. Another country that's done a really good job is the United Kingdom with their NCSC, their National Center of Cybersecurity. And they, they've done a lot to you know, work on public-private partnership and educate uh, their businesses about how to secure themselves. And, and you know, they start with the basics, right? Everything starts with the basics where we start doing proactive scans uh, and then getting commercial entities to understand the government is trying to help them and, and help them be proactive and providing the education uh, opportunities for their people so they can start to enable themselves. And so it's all about you know, teaching them how to fish at some point and letting them you know, protect themselves proactively. You mentioned some of the most uh, sophisticated countries in the world. What hope is there for Latin America, Africa, the developing world in this very threatening atmosphere, even from risks from within, not necessarily geopolitical threats? Well, well, the de developing world is is going to benefit from some modern technology advancements where they're you know, they're not going to have as much legacy equipment because they're buying new. Um, and one of the major problems we have in, in the West is you know, just legacy systems. We've had we've had Internet connected systems since the 90s, and we're still going through relying on a lot of those systems and going through an upgrade process. So I guess my hope for the developing world is that they, they get to buy new and, and get to start off with a clean slate with less technical debt than, than some of the other developed nations. Let me ask you a little bit about one of the biggest issues in the newspapers in the last couple of months, which is obviously within the context of the U.S.-China trade dispute is this U.S. against Huawei fight. Is this something that is, is, is one company really able to, you know, and I, I ask this because Huawei is doing so well in Africa and in Latin America, and 
Is one company really able to be such a threat to uh, people's privacies and, and for spying? Well, Huawei has a unique position in the internet world because they're able to deploy routers and switches and, and get fundamental low-level network access from the devices that they sell. They also provide remote support options for those devices. So they do have the ability to, to, to connect to them remotely. And so the concern in the West is that Huawei will deploy broadly across developing nations and extend the Chinese reach for you know, future Intel collection capabilities. I do believe the threat is there. Um, and if you look at how they go to market, you know, a lot of times Huawei will come in and, and basically give these developing nations credits or set up, set up the infrastructure for free. Uh, initially and, and get them hooked on these subscriptions. So I think there is some there's some worry about the, the closeness of that company with the Chinese government and what are the long-term implications of, of having that kind of access in some of these developing nations. And does that mean that China will develop one type of digital system and the rest of the world, notice, or, or let's say the Western nations of the world will develop another one and we will be increasingly not interactive with each other and... Are you, I guess that's one question. And the other one is, are you as optimistic as, you know, I read a lot of these uh, comments by in particular administration officials. I don't know how much they know about cybersecurity, but are you as positive as they was that the Chinese will never catch up and that these two worlds will mean that there's always one that's ahead of the other? Well, to your first question, I mean, all these systems will have to interact um, and be compatible with the existing internet. So I'm not too concerned about Huawei's deployments impacting broader reach into those countries. But if they have control over those networks with, with the arm of the Chinese government calling the shots, that would obviously cause some problems. In terms of the Chinese and, and in other countries catching up, I mean, this is this this digital arms race um, to catch up on these, either on cybersecurity or, or even on, on broad technology, like you know radar systems, space systems, everything that you can think of. There is an opportunity for these countries to level the playing field. We're, we don't have the lead we used to have uh, in manufacturing, and, and this world can change quite rapidly, um, and information can be stolen that, that advances the state of the art, right? So if you're behind and, and you're the Chinese government, you can certainly you know, try to find the leader and, and try to steal the data, or you can find hire people that you know, are willing to tell you how things work. And so I, I do think that we have to assume that there will be some level playing field across all the all the great nations in the world, but you know what's going to set us apart is how we improve for the long term and how we grow uh, these these skilled uh, workers in our countries. And so, what it, you know, I'd really love to see is, is the United States take a take a new approach to investing in in technical roles in in our colleges and and you know getting more students in engineering and STEM uh, so that we can you know maintain this lead. We have to push more students into this this field, though, because the gap is widening. Mark, let me ask you a final question. I mean, that you read the newspaper, there's no lack of threats. I mean, there's energy issues, there's religious strife, there's ethnic strife. We talk about global warming. But is cyber warfare really the greatest threat of this moment in history? It's a really interesting question because, you know, there are certainly implications of cyber warfare that uh, extend to the physical domain that make it very, very dangerous. The other great threat that we face is is really these nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation. Um, but what makes cybersecurity warfare, you know, so important and, and cyber warfare so dangerous is that there, there's a broad scale of, of systems that are connected to the internet that that can have physical effects, that, you know, such as water systems, 
water treatment plants, dams, power systems. We have to remotely control these devices. And so, you know, in, in a world where there's a really intense cyber war going on, uh, this is going to be of critical importance to, to secure. Um, and right now, I, I do think that we can do a lot more to make these systems secure. I'd love to see a more aggressive approach uh, taken by both government and commercial uh, entities alike and, and say, you know, we need to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the attacker. We need to take an offensive approach and try to break into our own systems, prove how we can do it and, and make ourselves more resilient to these attacks. Um, you know, it's like hiring a burglar to break into your house. This is this is the best way to you know, secure your systems is actually try to try to get in. You know, so in terms of, of cyber war, I think there are solutions to it. But this is certainly going to require not only hardening of our systems, but also a, a broader policy and, and you know, government leadership perspective on what's acceptable in that domain. Dr. Mark Kaur, thank you very much for joining us on Altamar today. Thank you for having me. So, Mooney, listening to Mark's interview from California, I mean, it just seems to me that I still feel like my father. Like, where do I find cybersecurity? Where do I find that comfort? I think one of the most interesting things he said was that, you know, we need some type of a good housekeeping seal of approval, some type of agency or some type of group or some type of industry group that provides some clarity about what it is that we're purchasing. That's thought number one. Thought number two is... I just think that we continue to be in this. It reminds me of the beginnings of the nuclear race, right? It, nobody wants, it's going to be difficult for me to imagine somebody launching the first attack because every subsequent attack basically destroys everything else. I mean, this notion of like water treatment plants and dams and things like that just being destroyed by cybersecurity seems to me to be something that we can do to a lot of countries and a lot of countries are going to be able to do to us. I just think this is a story about vulnerability. As consumers, we're vulnerable to our privacy being completely affected. And then the fact that the medicine is worse than the evil and the fact that there's going to be facial recognition and cameras everywhere, it, it, it makes for a very paranoid world. But I think more serious are the, the geopolitical implications of these cyber attacks and the fact that these lone wolves um, have so much power to create enormous disruption and then create enormous conflict. So I would um, rather not think about it too hard, but I do think it was useful to listen to Mark and all of his lovely implications of what we're living through. We'll leave it at that this time. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.